You're listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Today, I'm talking to Jackie Fields, who is the Senior Style and Beauty Editor at People Magazine. Hi, Jackie. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I'm so excited, too. I'm so, so excited to have the opportunity to talk to you. And we're here with Jackie's puppy. Oh, yeah. Bowie. <laughs> Bowie is here. The cutest thing. This is, you know, it's, it's a brand new world. It's a whole new world of seeing into people's homes, seeing their pets, seeing their children. And it's just, it just feels natural after all these months, right? Yeah, it's like we were never doing this. <laughs> like he was never sitting in my lap during a meeting. Definitely not the office, right? He wasn't. He wasn't joining you for your uh, he, meetings. He's come to the office. I mean, he's he's been to the office a couple of times. I he's actually been in the magazine. <gasps> One of my former editors was working on a project and needed a photo of an adorable dog. And enter my. 45-pound English Bulldog, and he made his magazine debut in January of this year. So oh my gosh! I, yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of shocked that the, uh, you know, dog modeling agencies didn't, didn't come a running, <laughs> but, um, but yes, no, he's, he's, he's been in People Magazine. I love it. He's a little star. He's a little celebrity. <laughs> well, he's made. He's had a lot of firsts this year because he was had his first magazine um, shoot. He had his first podcast interview. I think this is the first time we've had a dog on our during one of our interviews. So a lot of firsts. <laughs> but we see it's your year, kid. So I always love to start with talking about coffee, um, the namesake of our podcast. So are you fully? We're talking in the morning. Are you fully caffeinated? You know, I'm not. I. I ha I'm staring at a full cup of coffee that I just didn't seem to get to this morning. Um, so hopefully, hopefully at some point, uh, my enthusiasm will really show because it will kick in. But I, I, have, I have a lot of coffee to get through this morning. And I am a cold brew black person. So I'm very dedicated to my coffee choice. And it's usually one of the things that I write on my dating profile because it's that important to me. Of that you're like if you can't accept my coffee you can't accept me as a person yeah. there is no milk in my apartment there is no milk alternative we're drinking cold brew it is going to be black so uh, do you make your own cold brew do you make your own i do i, do. I have um i have one of those bodum machines to make it's not a machine but like a bodum appliance to make cold brew but i also have a chemex for pour over coffee, and then I have a French press. I'm really dedicated to coffee. I'm, you know, and I didn't, I didn't, I only made coffee on the weekends when I, when we were commuting to an actual office. So when I had to start, when we, when I started working from home in March, it just became something I felt like I needed to invest in. I so. love it. You've, you've come to the right place. I love to talk about coffee, obviously. And I always say I learn a lot about people from their coffee drink choice. Do you, and you're a year-round iced coffee drinker, huh? Oh, it can, if, it's, if it's negative 72 degrees outside, <laughs> I, I have a cup of iced coffee in my hands, and I'm probably not wearing gloves. I'm from New England, so, and I take that very seriously. Like, I, I, I um... 
a, an ability to withstand the most frigid temperatures like that to me is what it means to be a new englander you know and like your ll bean boots and so i'm i year round i drink iced coffee and if i'm home then my ice cubes are also coffee oh that is legit yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing so take like one extra cup and then that cup will become ice cubes I love it. So that is, I you know, one time I was, um, I was actually in Belize and that was the first time I saw that at a cafe. They had, you order iced coffee and the ice cubes were coffee. And I'm like, why is this not a thing everywhere? And it really isn't a thing here. I don't, you don't see it often. It's genius. No, it should be. <laughs> I have a dream for, I have a lot of, I have a lot of dreams for a coffee shop, for a flower shop. And I have all these ideas that involve things that should just be like you should be able to get easily, but I don't, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> I and love that. Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. When you're practicing, you can just think of all the coffee making as practicing. It's very funny. New England, being a New Englander, like I, I, to, I went to school in Boston. I see that as like a point of pride of like, how cold can you get before you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I feel like here, it, in New York City, it's almost, I, I feel the same way with like when it rains, how wet can you get before you open your umbrella? I feel like these are. That's exactly what it's, that is exactly what it is like to be a New Yorker. See, I don't like to be, I don't like, I don't like the rain. And, but I could be out like this morning, I was like, I'm going to wear a t-shirt because everything is fine. And it's like 46 degrees outside. And I'm like, nope, it's, everything is fine. <laughs> You're, you're watching a Patriots game and you're like, how few clothes do the people in the stands have on and it's 32 degrees out? So, mm -hmm. so true. Yeah. Oh, well, well you, you're telling, you told us where you're from and I'd love to start there in terms of talking about your career path. I want to hear about, you know, your path from your very first job to your college experience and, and the roles that you had um, that got you to where you are today in your role at People Magazine. It's funny because... As an editor, you would think that you could be succinct in, <laughs> so I apologize if I, if I tell a story and it seems I want to hear it all. We want to hear it all. But, but again, there's not, there's not a lot of coffee circulating just yet. So we'll see. I'll do my best. Um, I will start out by saying that I have a very distinct memory, probably at the age of seven, where I was on my living room floor, cutting up magazines, making new magazines. Yeah. And so yeah. I think that I've always known that I wanted to work at a magazine or in, and I believe it might've been like an architecture or home magazine. And, um, so I've, I've, I've always had, I've always known, I think that I, you know, and I think back in school and that I was a, a good writer and sort of probably coasted through the classes where I had to lean on my ability to write. Um, whereas in college, I, my sciences were um, the global emerging health crisis and flowers of the Alps, just to give you an idea of how non- <laughs> non-mathematical and, and science in my brain is. Um, so, uh, but I took, you know, I took French and Latin in high school and I took them both in college as well. And I, I just really, really always loved 
words on paper, as, rem as remedial as maybe that sounds. And so my first jobs had nothing to do with journalism and everything to do with circumstance. I, I lived in Boston proper, or I lived in Dorchester, which is a suburb of Boston. And they had a program where kids around the city could work cleaning up yards. And that was my first job ever. And I hated it. I hated everything about manual labor and thought that, and, you know, knew that I would never do anything where I had to, where I had to work like that ever again. And my second job, I will say two things about that experience. One was that I had to work that young to have money. I mean, we weren't poor, but I think my mother was trying to teach me that we weren't rich either. So there was a level of responsibility that she was trying to instill in me by me working at, you know, 14 or however old I was through this city program that employed people that young. So I think that that was something that always stuck with me, that the reality that, that like I had to work. That was a really tough summer. And I, in defiance, like didn't, I don't think I did it the following year, but then, but I did have to work throughout I think right after I graduated from high school and maybe throughout the first few years in college, I worked summers. My mother was a director for human resources and I worked for the state at a, at a, at the, in the unemployment agency of all places, taking unemployment claims. Just sort of listening to people all day long who, who'd lost their jobs, who were looking for jobs. And it was another really challenging job and a job that was you know way beyond I was probably 19 like <laughs> taking taking unemployment claims and so oh I don't gosh. it just was it was just another harsh reality of like the need to financially support myself it's funny I spent one summer the, my first summer from freshman to sophomore year I did a program that's when I did the program when I took flowers of the Alps because that was my study abroad mm -hmm. Uh, that summer. Uh, Tufts had a program in Talwar, which was, I just butchered that pronunciation, but um, it was in France. And that was, yeah. and I knew that was the extent of my summer abroad experience. And the other summers, I either worked for the, at the unemployment office or I worked at Tufts. And I worked school, like during the school year too. So I've had, I've always had jobs from a very young age, but I never had a job in journalism. I didn't really participate. I did not participate. Not really. I factually did not participate in our newspaper. I submitted one review of a Bjork concert and maybe a poem one time. And so when I was going to graduate from college, I remember my mother said to me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I am going to be a writer. I love my, she's never doubted my ability to do anything, but after four years of not leaning in that direction, <laughs> you know, after four years of having an opportunity to, to maybe write a thing or two beyond what was, you know, owed in a class, and she said, okay. And I was very, very fortunate to have a cousin who worked in media in New York. And she was, and that was 2004. And she was going to the Unity Conference in Washington, D.C. 
and Unity was, um, there was the National Association of Black Journalists and all of these associations and every four years they would get together and they'd call it Unity. So she was going on behalf of her company and she invited me to come with her. And I went and I had the goal that I was going to get a job at one of these big publishing companies. And for me, that meant particularly getting a job at Time Magazine. I was a political science major in college. I minored in studio art with a with an, um, focus on uh, photography. And I thought that I was going to be a photojournalist. And, and what, uh, what drove all this? Just because you, you liked magazines? I think that I, I not only liked magazines, the actual physical, like actually physically holding and, and, and thumbing through and reading a magazine, but I liked writing and was good at it. And I liked photography and was good at it. And so it didn't make sense for me to do something that I didn't like and wasn't good at. Hence, you know, the algebra four classes. Right. <laughs> so I, I, it just seemed like the next logical step. At the time, I, it's not like I, I didn't talk to people about their careers. I just had an idea of what I thought it was that I would do. And so I tried to figure out how I would do that. <laughs> and, and, and I went to this conference and my cousin was, you know, at her booth doing whatever it was that she needed to do. And I think that, I don't know if someone in my family, maybe my grandfather had a, had a subscription to time. And I, I just loved everything about the magazine. And I remember finding the booth and getting really close and sort of doing that thing you see in movies where like, I'm looking at the booth, but I'm also looking away and I'm looking down. <laughs> but like, you know, there's all these papers, like, you know, I mean, sorry, there's the, there's a stand with all the magazines. And I'm like staring at the stand, but I'm not staring at the stand. I'm waiting for my moment. If memory serves, I just think that my cousin must have saw that I was struggling, just struggling to, to break the ice and to walk over. And so she came with me and we ended up meeting the, new, the then news director at Time Magazine. He's was then and is now a lovely human being. And we hit it off and exchanged information. He said to me, if you're ever in New York, I'd love to show you around the, the office. And I said, great, I'll keep you posted. And I walked away from that meeting and I talked to my cousin and I knew that I had to move to New York. Mm -hmm. So I sat up a meeting with him and I moved to New York the day before the meeting. So when he got, when he opened up the door and saw me at his office, he said, how long will you be in this city? And I said, indefinitely. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, he showed me around the office and I met amazing people that still work at the magazine to this day. And we remained in touch. One of his news bureau assistants went on maternity leave and he asked me to come and fill in. And that was the moment that changed my life. It was a really exciting time. I mean, I was sitting at home applying to dozens of jobs a day to be an assistant anywhere at that point, um, just to have something, you know, babysitting, which is probably, I would say, not my strong suit. I'm great with kids, but like, it wasn't the thing that I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, it, and, it, and, he, and he called me 
And I, I, I worked with him for six months until she came back from maternity leave and he couldn't keep me. And in that time period, I learned that maybe I wasn't cut out for time. I, I was there at a very, very crazy news cycle. I think I'd been there for two weeks when the tsunami hit um, oh, wow. in Asia. I was there when Pope John Paul II died. And I, and I remember being on the phone with our correspondent in Italy, like typing up his feedback from, you know, I don't know, outside the Vatican or something like that. It was just, you know, I'm like crying. I'm not, you know, a deeply religious person, but like, it's just the, this moment, right? And I'm, right. I'm just crying and I'm crying both because of the moment and also because I'm like, I'm not, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Like, I don't, I don't know that I'm a, a hard, a hard journalist after all. And so when he was not able to keep me, I got lucky again. And he had previously worked at People Magazine and he said, you know, I've, they're looking for an edit assistant at People and I applied and interviewed and I got the job. And so I left you know, times, I left, I think it was the 27th floor on a Friday. And then the next, the following Monday, I just went to the 29th floor and started working for people. Wow. It's amazing. I, I really love your story and your, your journey, your path for a lot of reasons. A, because it, I think to me, um, it tells a story like you don't have to be so focused on internships and all this stuff and like know what you want to do when you're in college to then go on to do it. I think that is really because I think a lot of people, especially in this field, because so many people are doing all this work early, I think when when people are want to get into the industry, maybe right out of school, they feel discouraged. So I love this story of like, it doesn't have to be that way. You can still go and meet people and network. I mean, you did it a really interesting path. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I not to interrupt. It's funny because these days, I would say, even I mean, I knew I had to leave Boston because I knew that I hadn't interned at a magazine in Boston, and my impression of magazines in Boston, whether this was true or not, was that they were really small mastheads that were incredibly hard to break into. And I just thought, and I don't know why, that I would have an easier time in a place like New York when, you know, there were dozens and dozens of magazines mm -hmm. that someone might need an edit assistant and that I would figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because I, I think now more than ever, I think it is important to intern to build those connections in the industry but the thing that I think the thing that's probably equally as critical especially as you move on in your career is is networking which is not something that I've done an incredible job of I'm definitely that person who you know from 9 a.m until I'm done with my work just has my head down at my computer I'm you know sort of dedicated to my job, maybe to a fault. I'm not sure. It's funny that it just took one. You know, you might, you might meet a hundred people, but it, it's, it just takes one, the one person to get you to the step that you, you know, to help you get to the step that you want to be at. And so I got very lucky that I didn't, that it, that it didn't take a hundred people. Um, but it definitely, if I hadn't gone to that event, I don't know where I would be or know, you know, Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm particularly obsessed with networking right now. I mean, I've always been into networking and we've always talked about this podcast, but in this moment in time, we are not naturally meeting people, right? So I kind of always was naturally networking and almost not realizing it. And now while during COVID, the pandemic, I wasn't having those chance meetings, those chance networkings, those coffees, those things that feel casual, but I realized, oh, those are really growing my career and business. And so now I kind of have refocused and been like, we need to actively network right now if we want to continue networking, which is hard. And like, especially like you're saying, if you have, you're at work all day, you're working, especially if you're in front of Zoom, like it's exhausting. And so that's something I have been really thinking about even in the last few weeks, just being like, what, how am I going to do that? Is it that I just block off an hour on my calendar each week and make sure I like talk to someone? Cause it might not be someone. So, I mean, it was your cousin, right? Who kind of originally built that relationship and that's just someone you obviously already know. So maybe it's not networking, like going out to meet a million people and trying, but just talking to people within my network to keep up with people and see like, what are you doing? What am I doing? Do you need a job? Do you need a connection? Do I need a connection? It's been very, very front of mind right now because it's not, it's not natural. Yeah. Did you, so the jobs that you had before, the ones you talked about that weren't tied to the industry at all, did you feel like maybe in retrospect, you learned a lot of skills um, at those jobs that have helped you in your career? I don't, you know, that's a tough question for me to answer. I, I think what I took away from those jobs was that I had to work and I did not like those jobs. Mm-hmm. So that so if I was going to have to work, <laughs> you know, because because we were not wealthy, you know, that I would need to do something that I loved. Mm-hmm. I think that in hindsight, that that's what I learned from those experiences. You know, my mother is one of the hardest working people that I know. And I think that, and I look, I, 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 I struggle with how hard she had to work. Mm-hmm. And I am so fortunate. And so it's very, it's so, I just, I think that I knew that if I had to work, it had to be something that, that played to my strengths and was, was something that I loved mm-hmm. and, and loved even on days when I didn't get it right, you know, and, and, in, and on days when it was hard and on, on, on months where there were growing pains, it, I, I still had to fundamentally love it. I think that was an early lesson that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah. Inter- it's really interesting. And I, I mean, that probably really did affect your career in magazines, even though it didn't necessarily tie in exactly but I think it's really interesting I think so many we, we've never really talked about this on the podcast like so many women um who now work in media like we had working mothers in, who did not work in media and what kind of things did we learn about working and you know work-life balance as we call it or balance balance at all and um you know different kinds of values i think that's really interesting as something to think about like how did that influence what we do today even though it wasn't it wasn't the exact same jobs right so it's really nice to hear you talk about that um and the inspiration of your mother what was your path within people so when you got there you got that first job and then what what was your path so i'm an edit assistant at people 
and I moved from the Time News Bureau to the People News Bureau. So there were things about the job that were very similar. And the News Bureau was a very fascinating place because at the time, all of the top editors worked out of the New York office and they would assign a story and we had bureaus all over a continental United States. And so I would be responsible for reaching out to those bureaus, um, making sure the appropriate story was farmed out to the right person. And it was a wild, it was really intimidating. That's what I will say. I think back on that moment where I told my mom, I want to go be a writer. And, and, and now I'm in this office and I, and I'm not the per, I'm not that like reporter who's going out and, and, and chasing down sources. And I'm not the writer who's cranking at 4am after the sudden death of a celebrity. And, and, and I didn't, it took a really long time for me to find where and what I was supposed to be doing within the magazine. I actually have always been artistic, <laughs> not so artistic that I'm like super good, you know, you know, and so again, I was, a, I was a studio art minor at Tufts and I remember when I first got into Tufts, they had a program with the museum school in Boston, um, which was affiliated with the Museum of Fine Arts. And instead of getting a double major in fine art or studio art, you had to apply to get a dual degree. And I know talent aside, I did not apply to that program because I knew that I would have to work summers. And I knew that I wouldn't, it would take me forever to finish this program. And the thought of finishing college in, less, in four years was awful to me at the time. And so I didn't do that program. I mean, I didn't even apply to that program. I got to New York and I started looking at Parsons and the new school had a fashion studies program. It was an associate's degree program for people who already had gotten a bachelor's degree and were in the workforce, but wanted to transition to a career in fashion. And it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And I had to do this project to get in and so I took all my magazines and cut out Chanel ads in like squares or triangles or something like that. And I reconstructed a Chanel bag using Chanel ads in like in a quilted pattern. And I don't know what possessed me to do this. <laughs> I think I finally, finally recently threw it away, but someone thought it was good. And I got into Parsons. And so I'm, now I'm an edit assistant at People, working from seven to three. And I'm going from work to Parsons. Sometimes I'm in class until nine o'clock at night. Oh and I did this from the fall of 2006 to the spring, of, spring summer of 2008. I graduated. And I was still an edit assistant. So at this point, I'm now, I've now been at People for three years. I'm still a net assistant. And I thought, well, this is it. You went to, you went to fashion school. You sunk all of this money in, into fashion school. I didn't think that I could do the program and work full-time simultaneously. And I had been offered a scholarship that I could not ultimately take because I wasn't going full-time. Oh, wow. And so I ended up having a lot of debt from Parsons and fortunately did not have a lot of debt from Tufts, which 
made me feel okay about having a lot of debt from Parsons, but it was, I thought like you committed and now you have to go and work in fashion. And I started applying to fashion jobs and these are now, so now we're talking about like assistant designer jobs. So entry level jobs and you know, three, three years have passed and I would write a cover letter. I would get the interview and then I'd have to show my portfolio and I could not draw. And to this day, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't draw to save my life. If I had to draw a picture of a key to get out of my burning apartment, I would die here. Um, so I did not get a job after probably three or four or six months of looking for entry-level fashion jobs, which I also had failed to do proper research to see that I might in fact make less money, which you know, was just something that was, at this point I had my own apartment and I, it it wasn't something that was feasible. And so now I'm like, what did I do? I went to Parsons, I got this degree. At some point I'm gonna have to start paying these people back. I've not, you know, necessarily done anything in the three years that I've been an ed assistant because now I'm, you know, because I'm at Parsons doing this program to move myself forward. What am I gonna do? And It was the spring of 2009 and people had spun off their style watch pages into a full-fledged magazine. And that editor was looking for a new assistant. And it was like a light bulb went off, like, hey dummy, if you can't make clothes, at least you can write about them. (laughs) And I went downstairs to the EIC at the time. And I said, you know, I'd love to, to formally interview for this role. And she said, the person that I need is going to be like filling my schedule and making copies. Go back upstairs and tell this editor that you want, <laughs> that you, that you want to write for her. And that's what I did. Oh my gosh. And so now I'm now, now so now I've gone back upstairs, you know, and I and I knock on this woman's door who has been, you know, I, and she's been at the company the entire time that I've been there, but we've never worked together before. Her name was Elizabeth Sporkin, and I said, you know, I'm Jackie, and I I, I went to Parsons, and I love I love fashion, and and I and I'd love the opportunity to write for you. And she said, okay, you know, we wow. have meetings on Tuesday. We have, well, we have meetings on Tuesday at two. Start coming to our meetings. So I got permission to start going to those meetings and first time just to fly on the wall and then I'm pitching things and then I finally do my first interview. I think it's Jenna Duan. And in October of 2009, she calls me into her office and she says, we are launching a beauty page and I want you to do it. <laughs> like, and, you know, like... I want you to report it and I, I want you to handle it. And I, and I said, okay. And again, this was, a, that was, that was another, you know, these moments that like change your life. I mean, I still remember that first page, like it was yesterday. It was, it came out right before it was in whatever our Halloween issue would have been. And the top two thirds of the page were how to get the look of, you know, three famous pop stars. I think it was Lady Gaga. Like this was when she was like wearing hair bows and Rihanna when she wore her hair in a pompadour and Katy Perry, I don't know what she was doing that year. And I talked to a hairstylist and makeup artist, I think about how to recreate those looks for Halloween. And the bottom half of the, the bottom third of the page 
was an interview with Chris McMillan, who's Jennifer Aniston's hairstylist, about dry shampoo, which at the time was a new phenomenon. And I cannot believe to this day that Chris McMillan answered my call (laughs) when I reached out, you know, and and then fast forward 10 years, 10, 11 years, and now I'm the senior beauty, senior style and beauty editor at People, but I, I, I took that opportunity and I guess I ran with it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an amazing story and, and I, I love it. And I wanted to ask because you've been within the same company for so long and it's not necessarily as common, especially in media. Like, do you have any advice for, because I think a lot of people, and it's almost your the story that you're telling, you just took a different direction. I think a lot of people come to that fork in the road where they're like, I either have to leave because of X, Y, and Z, whether it's new opportunity or more money or whatever, or I can stay. And I think a lot of times people jump, even if they like their job, maybe for the wrong reasons. Like, do you have any advice if you want to stay within your company for things to do? I mean, it sounds like something that you did, like you reached out about new opportunities, anything, anything else that you kind of think really, really has helped your path along the way? You know, I look back and in those 10 years, I've gone from edit assistant to reporter, to writer, reporter, to writer, to editor, to senior editor. So I've had six titles over the, those 11 years. In some ways, I think you can look at the surface of that and say, well, like you, you know, uh, the graph went up, you know, <laughs> and so you did, you know, you did what you were supposed to do. I don't know that anyone should take advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't look on the, I'm on the inside of that and I don't necessarily see it that way. And I see what some of my other friends and colleagues have been able to do for themselves or with the help of other people. I don't know that I got it right. I will say that I think that you are your biggest advocate. So at the point of annoying and making, having uncomfortable conversations to fight for yourself, I wouldn't say that that's always something that I've done, but certainly sticking your head down and doing the work and hoping that someone recognizes it um, is not always the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, so. that's the great advice. So I think a lot of people do that. And I think what happens is you do that and then you get so annoyed and frustrated that you're beyond a point where even if you are at a good opportunity, I mean, I, I totally understand feeling like that that's just what happened and you can't give the advice, but I take inspiration from your story of it. You really were your best advocate, at least some of the time, um, where you went and, you know, talked to people within the organization, took on opportunities. I mean, you also could have said, no thanks, like I can't do a beauty page now or whatever, you know, you just took the opportunities that came to you and I think that really probably helped you. Not not to tell you how you did your job, but I'm very impressed with it. <laughs> Thank you. No, I appreciate it. I would just say that it, it certainly hasn't always been easy mm-hmm. and it, you know, and it's really hard not to measure yourself against the successes of other people in this industry. I don't think this is the most enlightening thing I'll ever say, but it comes, it sort of comes down to being steadfast and figuring out what it is that you want in this industry and being willing to do whatever it takes to get you to that place. Because I do think that there are plenty of people that wake up one day and go, I need a change of scenery. And that's really challenging to take that first step to figure out what else is out there. I mean, social media jobs didn't exist. Or all you had to do was have an interest in that field to get a job in that 
fields, right? right? And now, you, and now I can't even begin. I mean, now you'd have to like go to school to be right. able to get a senior level position in social media. And that was a little my path, actually. It's funny. It's so funny that you put it that way. Like my, I had my first job was um, at AOL and I was writing team content. And then I went to interview at 17, right? An incredible brand for the website. And I really, they basically told me you got this job because you're like the only person who's like written, for, I mean, this is a long time ago, like written for the web first teens. And now it's like, I mean, you can go to school, like you're saying, to write for the web. So this opportunity is a really, I mean, it's really changed so much yeah. over time. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the other ways? I mean, it's, to me, it's all, your career also is really impressive because this is a really tumultuous industry and things are constantly changing. And to be, I mean, you're at such an iconic brand, one of the, one of the, the biggies, it makes sense um, that you're able to sustain, but you know, what are some of the other changes that you've seen? Um, I mean, they could be bad or good. Like what are some of the innovations you've even seen in the industry over time? Social media is a great example, but just things that have really changed with it, even within your job as this, as the magazine industry changes so drastically. It was the fall of 2017. And I remember having to go to this, you know, I'm like, in an Uber going to an event, and the event is for the launch of Fenty Beauty. Rihanna launching makeup, like what more could you ask for? I huddled with a few of my industry colleagues who all happened to be black women. And Rihanna came out in this amazing marigold dress and talked about her line and being in a space in a moment where there was this seemingly cataclysmic shift in the industry where she was saying that inclusivity was not optional. That was huge because at that point, I'd been in an industry for eight years. The beauty of working at a place like People, which is truly like no other magazine in the world, is that most of what I did came from the perspective of celebrity. My friends would be like, oh, are you doing, you know, are you doing X, Y, Z? And I'm like, no, I'm talking to so-and-so because she just got this, you know, beauty contract or whatever. And, and so working through a celebrity lens guided a lot of what I did. In some ways, I felt like I was almost blind or ignorant to what was happening. But I also, you know, of course, I, I mean, not of course, but I would do a story about makeup and know that I would need to show makeup for all skin tones because I wanted something on the page that represented me. That's been a moment that's really changed the how I do my work, the way in which I'm able to do my work. And I don't know if I'm doing it justice in the way that I'm, you know, in the way that I'm explaining it right now. But the idea that you could look at a range of foundation and accept that they don't have a broad range. Right. Just sort of, I don't think I, I don't think I ever knowingly accepted it, but I don't think that it was something that I, that even as a woman of color, I paid as much attention to until someone said no. That was a really cool moment where like I felt like in the, you know, in the months and the years that have come, I've sort of gotten to puff up my chest a bit and say no. That's so, I mean, that's so, it's beautiful. It's great to hear. I mean, you know, I'm sure there've been even more impacts this year, but to think about that being an evolving thing for years and that, you know, and, and probably without even knowing it, you've made such an impact on so many women's lives because you were thinking of that as a black woman before maybe other people in the industry were thinking of that, right? You were looking at the pages that you were creating and wanting to make sure that there was rep representation now until 
the Fenty lines came out, like maybe it was literally impossible because there weren't necessarily colors for every single skin tone, but at least you were thinking of it. And so that's probably made an incredible impact. Um, and now, and now I'm sure it's almost a little bit easier to make that impact, although not easy. Um, but that, that's really meaningful. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, so much has evolved in this industry and that just seems like a, a such a positive change among everything kind of else happening in the world, um, in the world of media. That, that's really, really great. I'm so grateful for you, to you for sharing that story. I remember that, you know, we were in the midst of closing an issue. We were, uh, when suddenly everyone had to work from home and that challenge of the world is shifting and how do, you know, I, the, one of the most exciting things and petrifying things, but exciting things about the industry is, is understanding that you are responsible for both listening and guiding whatever the pulse is, you know? And it's a very delicate balance. And so how do you suddenly write about celebrity beauty if there's no red carpet? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, right, how yeah. you great question. <laughs> it's been such an exciting, I mean, despite all of the sadness and despair, it's been really cool and invigorating to try to give the reader what she wants, mm -hmm. what she wants right now. And that's what I was, that's what I mean about, you've got to love it because it's going to shift on you. What are some of the ways that you are, you were able to talk about beauty in a time of no red carpet? Like what are some of the things you've been doing to kind of, uh, it's exciting. I mean, you get to rethink literally the entire industry basically. So, and there's still not that much red carpet, right? There's a little bit, but not like anything significant. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think everyone sort of shifted to, okay, wait a minute. Like if you are going, if we're all going to be at home, like eventually I'm going to have to cut my nails. Like, okay, you know, eventually you, <laughs> you, and I think, you know, it's a very, it's probably a very New York centric view, but if you're, if your coverage is for so long, like breaking down how a celebrity colorist got this person's look, then suddenly you're talking to the celebrity colorist about how to dye your hair at home without ruining your bathroom. You know, I remember um, January Jones like posted a two minute video of her homemade bath concoction. And it was like this, this is content. And we covered it. That's what April 2020 gave us was like, right. January Jones in her bathroom, like pouring bath salts and essential oils and apple cider vinegar and you're going she's not giving me ratios and like talking to a derm like what's the right ratio you know that, that's what it became i love that so much and i wonder um you know one thing i thought uh, when we originally played this interview i'm like i i want to know yeah what is the focus of beauty that, like for women of uh, those of us who are working at home on zoom are people still doing full makeup or is it really more on like wellness like i feel like i'm taking better care of my skin and my nails and they're just they're much healthier but i'm not i'm all natural today when we're talking face like i'm not doing my makeup every day as i would when i go into the city even if i am going on video calls so do you have you found just as someone who has a big picture of that view like that that's kind of the shift or are people just having more fun with their hair color because they can like what are some of the things that you're seeing i think you're seeing a little bit of everything i i think that you are seeing people who are at home and experimenting with different hair colors 
I, I think fundamentally there's been a, a very much an uptick, I think, especially in light of all of the stress and sadness and confusion that the last year has brought that people, I, I think and I hope, are focusing a little bit more on self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that some things have come out of necessity, like the, you know, again, like the need to actually groom your own nails, whereas you see some women who are deciding that this is the time that they're going to go gray. Um, As much as you're seeing people who are, you know, experimenting with hair colors, I mean, when it comes to, Zoom, I think is, I don't, I don't have it right either, you know, I had to, I have a, all my colleagues, my style and beauty colleagues, they all look so great (laughs) in there when we're on, when we're on uh, video conferences, and they, you know, it's like, there's, there's a lot of invest in a ring light, you know, it won't, <laughs> it won't disappoint you. I think women are getting savvy and realizing there are some little things that they can do. I've had Zooms where I not, didn't necessarily have makeup on, but putting on a little bit of moisturizer and, you know, just a, a minute before a call, like made all the difference right. in, in me looking, you know, like a zombie or not. And I think even prior to this happening, the beauty industry was shifting to such an individualistic approach that I think that people are leaning into whatever it is that they get the most joy out of. I love that. Now you, now I feel like I should get a ring light. I mean, I've been thinking about it for eight months and you can see I'm sitting in like the, what I would call the world's worst lighting in the universe right now. I'm like, I need a ring light. Yeah. Well, I said to my colleague, I said, well, which one do you have? And she's like, I don't know. The box is under my bed and I'm still waiting for her to tell me because like haven't, you know, I don't want to get it wrong, but like, <laughs> No, it just feels like too much work for me. But it is funny, like thinking about what I used to do, getting up in the morning, doing the whole shebang, putting on makeup, doing hair, getting, and now I'm like, I probably could just do it. the ring lights about half, one, one millionth of the, the effort that I used Yeah. <laughs> that I used to put in. Well, I want to ask you just a fun question. I mean, I've loved this conversation. You have, so, I love your path. I think there's so much great advice and it's so great to hear everything, but on a, uh, just cause I have to ask you, cause I love People Magazine. I've been reading it since I was a kid. What is like your favorite celebrity encounter that you've had in your, in your whole career? Could you even pick one? Yes. And it's recent. Um, my colleague got an email that, I mean, it still floors me, but Sir Anthony Hopkins, you know, and it's funny because everyone, I, you give me a celebrity over 40 and I am just like, I'm a big fan, but um, <laughs> they always joke, you know, cause everyone's got their beat. Like, you know, but I, I tend to, I, I, my, my, one of my colleagues and I do really well with, with celebrities over 40. So anyway, I, the pitch came in and I, I'm not a territorial person. And I just said, me, mine now, like I, I, this is, this ha- this is happening. It's happening. I'm doing this interview. I have to do this interview, but also please let me do this interview. He was launching a personal fragrance and home fragrances in partnership with No Kid Hungry. And the, uh, the purchase of each gave back up to 50 meals through the nonprofit. And at first I just assumed that this would be a phoner. And then they said, no, it's going to be over Zoom. Oh my gosh. Here I am in my studio apartment with my 45 pound bulldog on my lap, talking to 
the one and only Anthony Hopkins about candles. <laughs> and like, you know, scents that will always, you know, that he'll always remember and him taking me back to like childhood moments in his uncle's garden or something. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people. <laughs> uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I, every January, I used to, every, at the end of every year, I used to count up how many celebrities I had spoken to and say that the following year I was going to speak to, you know, X number more. And these specific people, if I could, because I, you know, and, and just whatever it was. And never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that I would ever get to talk to someone as supremely talented and genuine and just someone who was doing something so selfless and awesome. He was just the loveliest person on the, that I've ever I've probably spoken to. And, and at the end of the, the interview, he impersonated Hannibal Lecter. And I oh don't think in my entire life that I would ever <laughs> oh my gosh. get the opportunity. I mean, something about that moment made me think that all of the work that I've done was just to get me to this point. <laughs> yes. And if I never did anything else, if I never do, if I never do anything else, it is okay. Right. Because I got, I got, I got, I had those 10 minutes with Anthony Hopkins, who goes by Tony. So. Shocking. You just shocked I, me. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what else to say. I, That's so good. I, I mean, uh, for you also to still be able to be floored by a celebrity interview, I mean, that alone is a big deal. So that's, and, and I think part of it probably also is like with the particular vertical that you work in, fashion and beauty, there's definitely people that you're probably thinking, I'll never talk to that person. Like they're just never going to cross over into my realm. So that's a particularly good one. Yeah. I don't know if anything will top it. I got to, I, my, it's one of those moments where you're like, well, do I now, do I have to find a new job? Like, what do I, <laughs> just like, like because the, this is it. Like, this is, this is it. It, it really was, I never email my family and say, I'm doing this interview. You know, I'm proud of, I'm proud of the work that I do, but this is my job. And so right. I take it seriously and I, you know, I'm emailing them every step of the way. It I was love really, it. really fun. And it just sort of goes to show that, you know, after 10, 10, 11 years of doing this, that like you can still have those moments that are out of this world. I just never in my wildest dreams. I love that. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Just like you, it keeps, it keeps it exciting that anything at any time could pop up. That's like really an incredible, amazing, exciting opportunity. Uh, I love it so much. Oh my gosh. Well, before we wrap, I've had the best time talking to you. Do you have um, a piece of career advice someone's given you along the way that you really loved or even one that maybe you didn't love? <laughs> I think there are two. One piece that I loved, I am still told by some people that I consider to be mentors is to never underestimate networking. Another piece of advice that I received in my career was when I got promoted and no longer could make overtime and my mm -hmm. boss at the time told me that I needed to work smarter, not harder. What'd you think of that? I thought, well, that's easy for you. That's easy. <laughs> that's easy for you to say. 
I still struggle with that advice. I do think that there, there's something to be said about smart work. And so I try to ask myself if I am entrenched in something or I'm about to take on a project and I know that it's just going to be really, really massive. What is the smartest way that I can do this? So even though I think in the moment that was really hard to hear and the context in which it was delivered to me was not ideal, that I, that there was something to that there was definitely something to understanding and I think growing in your career what it what it means to do smart work I think that's interesting advice yeah I was thinking the same thing like that's not what you want to hear when someone's like well you need to get the same amount of work done and like less time like that's impossible Mm -hmm. but I do think it's it's kind of a conversation I've heard popping up especially in the last few months of like everyone, you know, when we're working at home and there's such a blur between work life and home life and how to almost like work, maybe not less hours, but make sure work defined hours or not all the time, which I think so many of us are doing because like we're home and our computers are there and it's like, oh, we can pop in and out as, as we wish. And so I have, I think that's interesting and timely advice in terms of what does that mean? Like working smarter now and gaining back control of some some of your all of our lives um in a in a work from home pandemic world um so yeah i think i think it's interesting advice to 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 mull over not maybe take it yeah all all but um i think that's really interesting yeah those are those are both great i just love hearing people's career advice that they've received and Sometimes it's even more fun to hear the, the bad advice because people give bad career advice and people and I think we don't talk about bad career advice, so a lot of us just take it and it's not good. So really taking every piece of advice like, oh, is this actually something that I should follow is is yeah. worth thinking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where can people find you? Where are you on social media? I'm not on the Twitter, as they say. Um I'm not really on the Facebook either. You know, it's funny because I went to, I was at Tufts. I overlapped with like the Mark Zuckerberg era. Like he, he was at Harvard at some point when I was at Tufts. And I remember um, maybe it was my senior year of college, my, one of my dear friends getting, getting Facebook. And yet I did not have a Facebook page until I discovered the world of like online dating and you had to legitimize yourself by having a Facebook right. page. Verify it. So reluctant. Yes, I had to be verified, and so I very <laughs> reluctantly created a created a Facebook page that I uh, that I had my friends like completely locked down so that no one would be able to find me. So I have about four and a half friends on Facebook, but I am I am on Instagram at this point. My feed is uh, dog pictures. I mean, um, what else could anyone want right now, honestly? And that dog is so cute. Thank you. In my wildest dreams, I could not have captured a perfect Zoom photo of myself and Anthony Hopkins so that you will not find that there. <laughs> if, you, if you scroll back, you'll see some pretty wild moments with um, some really, really cool celebrities that I've gotten to interview over the years as, as, you know, as well as moments, you know. I, it's funny. Uh, my friend said, you never, you don't smile in photos. And I just remember thinking like, I don't, I don't want smile lines. Like I can't afford... <laughs> Why would I, why would I emote? It's, that's very expensive. That's, you know, it's a very expensive thing to do. Worth it. I worth think, it. Half, you know, but in, in, I maybe am half smiling, but I am having a good time. Um, I love that. We'll know. 
on Instagram, I'm, it's, I'm the underscore Hunter, which is, um, a Bjork lyric. Are you a Bjork super fan? I'm a Bjork super fan. Yeah. Yeah. Have you met Bjork? No. Um, I did go to Iceland looking for her, but she, uh, but I did not find her. (laughs) Well, I just, I think, you know, if we're looking towards the future, we're setting our goals and intentions for 2021. And you said like, Anthony Hopkins might be your, you know, your greatest interview. I think Bjork could be on in your future. Yeah. I, you know, I I don't think I knew that I was going to fawn over Anthony Hopkins the way that (laughs) did so I'm not sure what it would be like if I ever got to meet Bjork but yeah well I want to know if you meet Bjork now I'm like obsessed with this I'm gonna make it my personal goal (laughs) yeah just slide into her DMs (laughs) I think I should never I should never say never but I did I did I did go all the way to to Iceland and couldn't (laughs) seem to find her so I don't I'm not sure when our paths will cross Oh man, at least you got a vacation when we could when we could take trips. At least you got a vacation out of it. See my favorite places. Yeah. Oh well, Jackie, thank you so much for your time. I had so much fun talking to you and meeting you, and this was great. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I I, I made it um, only a quarter of the way through my cold brew, so oh. I, I hope that I <laughs> I hope that I can, that you can hear my enthusiasm and gratitude for this interview um, without me being properly caffeinated, but I so sincerely appreciate um, you considering me for this. Of course, and I can't believe that you were able to keep this level of energy with only a quarter of a cup of coffee, so I'm very impressed by that. Small miracles. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm way caffeinated, so I I can't say the same. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so, so much. And for more information about this podcast, you can check out the New York Women in Communication Twitter at NYWICI, where we always post new episodes, or you can find all of our episodes at nywici.org slash podcast. That's nywiki.org slash podcast. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grizet, Mandy Carr, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to the team at New York Wiki who supports us, including, but not limited to, everyone at Kellen, Deidre Wyeth, and June Price, who designed the show's logo and does all of our graphics. <laughs>